This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. times what the most challenging aspect of doing this show is <laughs> I know it's going to sound ridiculous but it's true it's <clears throat> remembering what day it is because it's Wednesday but it's very very early on Wednesday so when I read an article about uh, this person arrested on Tuesday I said wait a minute when was Tuesday I was like yesterday okay, well, that was yesterday but it could also just been a few hours ago well anyway there is a very interesting situation playing out at the, you know, at the, uh, involving the Arlington National Cemetery. A federal judge yesterday cleared the way for the removal of a Confederate memorial from Arlington National Cemetery just one day after a temporary restraining order had halted the plan to move one of the most prominent monuments to the Confederacy from the nation's most famous burial ground. The memorial has been criticized for its sanitized depiction of slavery, and its removal is part of a military-wide effort to take down Confederate symbols from bases, ships, and other facilities. Dozens of Republican lawmakers have opposed removing the memorial. So in his ruling yesterday, Judge Rossi David Alston Jr., how'd you like a name like that? You know once you get the name Rossi David Alston Jr., you're either going to be a judge or a presidential assassin, right? Those are pretty much the two career paths that are available to you. And uh, he's a judge in the Eastern District of Virginia. He found that a group called Defend Arlington had failed to show that it is in the public interest for the monument to stay and that its claims that nearby graves were at risk of damage were misinformed or misleading. So basically this wasn't about this court proceeding, whether or not this memorial should stay up or not. This group that was trying to keep it up was trying to use other technicalities, other legal means to to take it down. So at the hearing a day earlier, the judge said that he had toured the site and saw no desecration of any graves. He said the grass wasn't even disturbed. So this uh, disassembly of this memorial was stopped on Monday after this group, Defend Arlington, requested a restraining order. The group filed a lawsuit on Sunday against the Defense Department, claiming that the decision to take down the monument was rushed and that the work to remove it would damage the surrounding graves and headstones. That turns out not to be accurate, at least according to the judge's tour of the facility. So this memorial was found was funded by the United Daughters of the Confederacy. It features a woman 
who represents the American South standing atop a 32-foot pedestal. And near the base are dozens of life-size Confederate soldiers alongside mythical gods and two black slaves. One is a black woman holding the child of a Confederate officer, and the other is of a man following his owner to war. That's what the cemetery's description says. The removal process is now going to continue immediately. So while the work is being performed, surrounding graves and headstones in the landscape will be carefully protected by a dedicated team. The memorial is expected to be removed by Friday. And it's then going to be stored in a secure facility until they figure out what they're going to do with this. I mean, there's got to be a whole museum of uh, of Confederate memorials somewhere. Here was uh, the David McAllister, the attorney for Save Southern Heritage, Florida. He was talking about, I, I don't believe he was directly a litigant in this case, but he's disappointed in the ruling. It's not about racism. This is about reconciliation after a fratricidal war. They're stepping on graves. They're moving in heavy equipment. This is not a good photo op for the the federal government. Very disappointed in this ruling. It's very likely that it will be appealed. We're very disappointed that apparently the judge visited the site without being accompanied by counsel. I'm afraid to say he may have applied his own personal feelings into the case. So we'll see. I don't know if that's uh, there's going to be some other legal attempt to stop this between now and Friday. I have to tell you, you know, I have no love for the Confederacy. And honestly, I think anybody that tells you that the Civil War wasn't mostly about slavery is being a bit disingenuous. There were other factors. States' rights was uh, certainly an issue. Uh, the economy was certainly an issue. Power in Congress was certainly an issue. All of those absolutely were uh, factors in the Civil War. But the primary factor which caused the South to want to secede was slavery. I mean, the South made the decision to secede because of slavery. The South wanted states' rights because they wanted the right to have slavery. So I think the idea of referring to the Confederacy as... They, 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 historians these days don't even really call it the lost, the uh, Civil War. They call it the Lost Cause War. And I think there's some truth to that, right? Because, I mean, through the prism of history, we see how wrongheaded uh, slavery was and how foolish it looks on the part of 21st century scholars and historians to, you know, even make any defensible argument in favor of keeping people in chains. That being said, I really do think that this memorial, which has been standing for over 100 years since, I believe, 1914, it, it really doesn't commemorate the Confederacy. I certainly don't think it commemorates slavery. I think what it commemorates is bringing the country back together, reconciliation and national unity between North and South. I'm not a big believer in taking down monuments at all i think in general uh, i mean it it just strikes me as almost stalinist and uh, to me i think we should keep monuments up and learn from them and study them and um, debate the historical legacy of the events depicted in them but uh, let's say you don't share that view this particular memorial in my judgment it's about national unity 
And I don't think there's a better message right now when I think there are a lot of folks in the South that would love for the North to secede. And so the North can form the blue blue states of America. And I think there's a lot of people in New York and California that would love for the South to secede so they could form the red states of America. And I, I just think that destroying or removing these monuments to national unity right now, in my view, it's ill-considered. And I don't think this will do much to bring the country together. Look, the land where the Arlington National Cemetery is, that was Robert E. Lee's house. So I just think to act like the people that were part of the Confederacy didn't love this country and have to make a lot of sacrifices to put this country back together again, I think it's short-sighted. I think it's short-sighted. Again, no defense of slavery, no defense of the Confederate States of America, but to me this memorial is a celebration of national unity and reunification. Others disagree. Um, You can feel free to comment. 800-848-9222. The members of the naming commission, by the way, they say that the intricate images and the inscriptions that are etched into bronze that they venerate the whole narrative of the lost cause, the myth that the uh, rebellion of the South was a noble fight for states' rights. And the United Daughters that first put up the funding for this and got this built, they were composed of descendants of men who had served in the armed forces for the Confederacy. And so obviously it does show kind of their point of view and what some people say is a sanitized take on slavery. So... um, Tell me what you think. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. You're welcome to comment on uh, on anything else we've covered as well. Uh, original Rick is in Original Jersey. Hi. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. Uh, just a quick thing about the Prissy problem. Because I've had three cats exactly like Prissy. Taking care of them for years, as soon as they walked in the room, they disappeared under the bed or the couch. And each time, all three came around amazingly so. And I, I didn't do it on purpose. I just realized after it happened, after I had to bring them to the vet, very hard to catch these cats, but once they did, and they were there like three three days or so by the, you know, I would go get them, bring them home, and they amazingly were like confectionery. And I realized it's because that the vet kind of told me to, they don't remember you taking them somewhere. They just remember you bringing them back. You're their hero. You rescued them. And has, first of all, does Prissy see you feed her? Or is the food just like magically there for her? No, no, she sees Rachel feed her because she leaves That's the room. It. She leaves the room if I'm in the room. Okay. Well, see, there's a problem. You should try. She'll come out eventually. She'll get hungry enough if you're the only one feeding her. But she needs to see that you're taking care of her. She doesn't realize that. You know, well, but, but I don't understand. Like if Prissy's lived there for six years, why will it? Why would it affect her if I'm taking care of her or not? Well, well, because you're not there. She runs away and she doesn't see you feeding her. She just thinks you're. She knows Rachel takes care of her. She doesn't realize their brains are small. Each time I was their hero, when I maybe if you like give her to a relative for a couple days, just a couple days, and she'll be very unhappy about it, which is good. Then you come and you get her, not Rachel. You get her so she sees you are rescuing her. 
and it may change your whole view. Now, of who first you of all, are. I mean, it takes days to try and get Prissy into a cat carrier. I'm not going to oh, uh, oh, traumatize know, her just for this um, thought experiment. Also, I'm fine with where my relationship is with with Prissy. Uh, my my immediate concern is just getting her to get along with this new cat, or at least to, if not get along with him, at least stop um, hissing and. Uh, and, you know, trying to go after this cat. But I appreciate the advice, Rick. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Joe is in the Queens. Hi, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, just getting to the to drugs in China and uh, India. These are allegations. But there was a reporter that uh, slipped into China. He looked at, like, a handful of labs. It's like a 1,000 that manufacture drugs. Now, he alleges that... Uh, these drug manufacturers uh, had people coming in the labs after they closed during the night to make fentanyl, uh, separate people coming in and using the same facilities. Uh, another thing is there's an allegation that a good percentage of the Pfizer COVID shot is being made by Folsom Company from China and arriving without any information on the ingredients. On India, they make a huge percentage of generic drugs. I'm wondering, you could look this up if they do Viagra. And it is interesting that in Italy, they use French maritime pine bark, which has no side effects, that they get uh, similar results to uh, Viagra. You could also look that up, French maritime pine bark. Uh, you know, I'm not familiar with that, Joe. Thank you. Look, I, I um, what you just described is one of the reasons that I am not for uh, Bush-Clinton-Bush-style free trade. Because free trade is a great thing. But in order to have free trade, you need to have fair trade. And what we saw Democrats and Republicans pre-Trump rushing to do was do things like give free trade, make free trade agreements with every country that wanted it. And sure, it made sense. The multinational corporations really benefited from the decreased labor costs. Oh, um, and the American consumers benefited from the lower price of those products. But the people most hurt were the American worker and the American consumer in another respect, which I'll get into in a second. But if you're going to have, and this is honestly one of the things that so attracted me to uh, Donald Trump initially, is this has always been his view. You know, he didn't take on this view to run for president. But if you're going to have free trade between two countries, whether it's the United States and Mexico, whether it's the United States and India, the United States and China, how can you have two companies make the same product while one company in America is paying their workers $15 an hour and one company in China is paying their worker 15 cents an hour. You can't. You can't. How can you have a situation where uh, the factory that's manufacturing a widget or a tire or, yes, medication in the United States is upholding the strictest labor and environmental standards and you have a, a, a man, the same product being manufactured in China where they don't think anything about putting lead in it and having unsafe conditions for the people that are working on it and all sorts of other contaminants in the air. And yet the American company is penalized because they can't compete with the Chinese company that is importing that. They're, so they're put out of business. 
It's what Ross Perot called the giant sucking sound. So that's why I've never been, I'm all for free trade as long as any country that we engage in a free trade agreement with, whether it's on drugs or cars or something else, for economic reasons and yes, for health reasons, has to observe American labor and environmental standards. You do that, you're going to observe the same environmental and labor standards that American companies have to adhere to? Absolutely. Free trade all day long. But no, no, no. You're not going to uh, ship your medication here when it took you 10 cents a bottle to manufacture that and compete with an American company that it cost $1.50 a bottle to manufacture that. Uh, If you're going to do that, you're going to be whacked or at least you should, in my view, with a pretty hefty tariff. Uh, again, that's the that's the aspect of the Trump record that I think is the strongest. Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Two open lines if you want to comment. Isabel is in Manhattan. Hi, Isabel. Hi, Frank. Uh, some time ago I was disgusted to, to learn that how some of the medicine comes from India when many worship the cow and they hold their hands under the cow to be peed on. Wait, wait, the cow? Wait, wait, you lost yeah, me. A lot, I, I know a drugs lot of, come from India, but where, where, where are we with the cow and the urine? You lost me on that um, one. Oh, a lot of people worship the cow and they hold their hands under the cow to be peed on. So how do we know? Oh, if and some of these people aren't working in making medicine. Yeah, I, okay. I'm not familiar with that specific tradition, but I'll take you at your word for it. I think you're you bring up a very strong point. Now, in this country, ninety percent of prescription drugs, uh, generic prescription drugs, not the brand names, but generic prescription drugs, ninety percent of them either come directly from India or they use ingredients that are made. In India. And just a few years ago, 2019, the FDA said that Indian factories had the highest rate of inspection failures. So I agree with you. I think there's ample reason to be suspicious of all these drugs being made from India. I'm not trying to get anybody worked up here, but I think it is definitely a cause for concern. You know, I was going to mention this before, so let me mention it now since it's kind of relevant to the tangent that I just went on. Um. Democrats and Republicans alike in Congress are warning about the potential harms of this proposed $15 billion acquisition of U.S. steel. You remember the expression, if Godfather Part Two, we're going to be bigger than U.S. steel, um, by a Japanese company, Nippon Steel Corporation. And there's a lot of concerns about national security and union jobs. Senators J.D. Vance... Marco Rubio, Josh Hawley, Republicans, they said in a letter to the uh, Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, that the Japanese company that's taking over U.S. Steel is a company whose allegiances clearly lie with a foreign state and whose record in the United States is deeply flawed. Democrat Bob Casey, Pennsylvania. Uh, I'm, he said, quote, I'm concerned about what this means for the steel workers and the good union jobs that have supported Pennsylvania families for generations. So I think this is uh, this deal will require approval from the uh, U.S. steel shareholders as well as government regulators. I hope they don't get it. Call me crazy, but I think U.S. steel should be an American company. It reminds me a little bit. I don't know if it's as 
crazy as what George W. Bush was trying to do, but it reminds me a little bit when um, the Bush administration was trying to give control over the safety of American ports and the security at American ports to Dubai Ports World, a company based in the United Arab Emirates that the UAE government was kind of the largest shareholder of. So um, we'll see where this goes, but I'm glad to see some, at least a little bit of bipartisan opposition to this. 800-848-9222. David is in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hi, David. Yes, uh, good morning. Um, I want to comment on the uh, Confederate War Memorial, but I have to say something quickly about U.S. Steel. Um, The fact of the matter is they're the ones that put themselves up for sale. And if a Japanese company takes it over, where is the national security threat being that Japan is literally one of our closest allies? So I, I think this is a little bit uh, hysteria over pretty much nothing. Well, no, now, no. Well, okay. Well, so again, I, I didn't write the letter. It was just a letter written right. by, you know, uh, Rubio, Hawley, and, and Vance. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, say that I came to that conclusion independently. But let's say, let's just say that um, steel from this particular company, U.S. Steel, um, is being used to build American armaments. And then let's say that uh, this company that's, um, you know, based in a foreign country doesn't necessarily have the same degree of, um, you know, uh, of thoroughness in terms of making sure this steel is the highest quality. I mean, I could see maybe some, and that's just one example, members in the military being a little, uh, a little reticent to buy a company that's, you know, not servicing the military of the country in which it's based, it's servicing the military of a foreign country. I mean, I think that kind of makes sense. Well, first of all, Frank, U.S. Steel is not going to be changing their product to suit the Japanese market. It's a Japanese company. They're interested in making money. They're not going to do anything to jeopardize their market share in this country. So, again, you know, I understand that people... You know, they hear another nation's taking over an American company and they get worked up. But in most cases, these don't comprise a threat to the country. They're not going to – I mean, they might let some people go as part of a cost-cutting measure, but – it, it doesn't represent a threat to our national security. But, well, uh, so maybe it does, maybe it doesn't. But and, and I know you want to comment on Arlington, but just let me say in response. The problem with companies, whether they're American companies or foreign companies, but the problem with companies that are entirely driven by profit and trying to produce the biggest return for their shareholders possible is that uh, there is a willingness to cut corners. That when there's not American regulators monitoring this, there are really cause for concern. I just mentioned in India the situation about the inspection failure rate in these plants that produce uh, generic drugs. So I I honestly, I don't think it's as unfounded as you make it sound. I think the profit motive on the part of a a country that, or, or on the part of a company in a foreign country, I think that makes it even more concerning that there would be you know, national security okay. implications for this. But go ahead. Right. But Frank, the, 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 their, that company, their manufacturing is still going to be in this country and subject to our laws and regulations. So I, I understand what you're talking about with India, but I would also point out that the Indian plants are actually being inspected by our FDA. That's why they're failing the inspections. Mm-hmm. But if I could get to the, sure, the, go the ahead. memorial go ahead. Yep. issue, because I know our time yep. is limited. All right. What, what really bothers me about this is, A, the depiction of the slaves in the memorial that you mentioned, which I wasn't aware of until you said it. And the other thing is, 
this is government property that honors our fallen troops, our heroes. Those Confederates that are in that memorial took up arms against the United States. Now, you might feel, I know you don't, but there are people who feel that they had a valid cause. But you know what? They killed American soldiers, okay? There should not be a memorial to that. I'm sorry. They can put their memorial up. There's plenty of Confederate museums all over the South. Send it to one of those where it can be appreciated by the people who like that kind of thing. I don't think it should be uh, in a place that sir, that honors our fallen troops. David, uh, I'm going to ask you one quick question here based on what you just said, uh, and then I have to move on because we have a, a guest here. Uh, Stacey Perry is coming up to talk about makeup movies and more. But there are uh, the remains of con- Confederate soldiers buried at Arlington. Do, do you think we should be exhuming the remains of Confederate soldiers? No, no. If Listen, once people are buried, they should stay wherever they are. But a monument is something else because it's, it symbolizes something. And I don't think that's an appropriate symbol. The naming the bases after Confederates, naming ships after Confederates. I've never heard of a country that does this, where they take people that took up arms against their government and killed its own citizens and then have memorials at government sites. It makes no sense. It's something that I don't think occurs anywhere else in the world, and it's time we move past it. Thank you, Frank. Thanks, David. All right, we're going to talk makeup, movies, and more with Stacey Perry. Uh, She is a veteran special effects makeup director and uh, is now involved in one of the hottest streaming television shows that there is. We're going to get into that and more straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. After the hour, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, makeup is a very funny thing because makeup is something that I'm going to say pretty close to half the population uses on a regular basis. And I've heard some people actually say that makeup is the most common deception that there is in the course of everyday life. Because if you use makeup well or use makeup properly, you could look like a different person at times, if that's what you're going for. Makeup in the world of movies and television is in some respects the same thing, but in a lot of respects, it's totally different. If you're talking about the essential elements of visual storytelling, you want to make someone look like a giant monkey or a zombie or an alien, the people that are going to be doing that are the 
makeup folks. That's why I'm very, very interested in um, what our next guest has to say. Stacey Perry is a veteran special effects makeup director, and her latest project is Twisted Metal, which is breaking all sorts of streaming records for the Peacock Network. It's a post-apocalyptic action comedy series that apparently has been uh, Peacock's most binged show for these last couple of months. Stacey, thanks for getting up early for us. Thank you for having me. So, Stacy, how did you get in the world into the world of makeup, at least professionally? Uh, well, professionally, so my both of my brothers are actors, and um, we had this uh, little show on Fuel TV called MC Outdoors, and uh, we started way back then, um, and we pretty much had to do everything because it was a low budget show, and makeup was one of the things that uh, just kind of called to me. So I've been doing it since then. Well, that's terrific. Now, I I know it's very trendy, and I know everybody's talking about it. I have not seen Twisted Metal. If if anyone in our audience have not has not seen Twisted Metal, here's a little bit of this uh, trailer for this Peacock show. Twenty years ago, the world fell to. Sh- Cities put up walls to protect themselves and threw the criminals out so they could fight over what was left. But there are humble motherfuckers like me. Delivering cargo from one walled city to another. And that's where the cars and guns come in. Give me the package, no yeah! So if I'm here, then the exit is. Oh, they have a footlocker. Oh, son of a. Welcome to New San Francisco. I want to hire you. Pick up a package, bring it back. I can make your every wish come true. So, John, what do you wish for? Toilet paper. Two ply. I think I can do better. Three ply? Kill it! All right, Evelyn, let's deliver this package. It's rude not to introduce yourself before pulling a gun on someone. Oh, it's rude! If you put the gun down, I'll drop you off as close as I can to where you're going. She's quiet. She don't talk. Motherfucker, eat Much. You have no idea what's out here. Even the people trying to bring the law back are dangerous. This is our land. These are our roads. And they're gonna have to go through Vegas. We both know who rules Vegas, John. Hi, everybody. I've never seen anyone cut off a human head and catch it as good as that. Wow, that uh, seems pretty intense. Uh, Stacy, how would you describe a uh, twisted metal to someone like me who hasn't seen the pro- hasn't seen the program? Sure. So, I mean, it's based on a really popular video game in the '90s, and um, it's been, you know, transformed into this TV show where you have the story based around John Doe. Um, and he has his car, Evelyn, that is kind of his ride or die. It basically saved him when he was a child and the apocalypse happened. So he's got like a, it's like his mom, basically. And then he comes along and meets uh, Quiet, and they kind of go on this adventure together in the post-apocalyptic world where they have a killer clown chasing them and lawmen. And it's just a, it's a lot of fun, action-packed, and it's it's a really hysterical show. It's probably some of the best scripts that I've read in a really long time. 
This is uh, yet another uh, television program that's based on a video game. I'm wondering right. why you think so many shows and so many films these days seem to be based on video games. Is that uh, an attempt to get younger viewers interested in what's being put out by Hollywood? I think that you kind of get like a double whammy. You get some of the younger crowd and then you get a lot of the people who are like the, you know, cult cult following for these types of games, especially like Twisted Metal. It has a pretty huge cult following, I think. It is interesting. I can imagine with a post-apocalyptic show, a sci-fi action comedy like this, that there's a a lot of different challenges when it comes to makeup as opposed to a, a typical sitcom or even drama. What are the unique makeup challenges about working on a show like this? I think that for for my department especially, you know, we get thrown a lot of curveballs. Um, I know in the first season. They kind of uh, sprung a few things on us that we weren't expecting. So, I mean, like, for example, you know, special effects makeup doesn't necessarily always provide um, props. But for this particular show, it was kind of everybody pitching in. So we provided a lot of props for the show as well. Um, and that was that was a lot of fun and, a lot, and also challenging because we also had to, like, juggle all of the makeup and, the, and designing the looks for each character. Uh, that's the, honestly the most fun part. Oh, I can imagine. I can imagine. Now, is that done by you? Do you get to design the look for the character, or is that uh, is that done by someone else? The decisions about what each character should look like. So what happens usually, and especially for Twisted Metal specifically, we get on, um, we get in a meeting with the showrunner and the director of that episode, and we just kind of all powwow with uh, the hair hair department, makeup department, costumes, and we kind of all talk about how the looks are going to be, and we just kind of all come together and bring our own talent to each character. Maybe this is bring them to life. Uh, maybe this is not something that you can comment on, but since you're involved with this show and playing a pretty important aspect, I'll ask you anyway. I'm wondering what you think is about the appeal of all these post-apocalyptic shows. What do you think is happening in society that so many people are interested in looking at shows or films that take place after the whatever hits the fan? I mean, I feel like a lot of people have always kind of uh, feared the apocalypse. Uh, that's been something that's always been portrayed over the years in the entertainment industry. I think that uh, it might even be like a preparation and, you know, subconsciously. Yeah, I I think you might be right. Um, but um, how was the the writer's strike and the actor's strike for you? I imagine not just Twisted Metal, but any of the other shows that you might regularly work on were all on hold. How'd you pay your bills? It was, it's been pretty tough, actually. Um, I got lucky. Um, I have, you know, some other freelance gigs that I can fall back on, like face painting and uh, graphic design. But most of us in the industry did not have not worked. Uh, some of us haven't worked in over a year. And, uh, you know, you just have to plan your money out right and, and hope, hope that the shows start up again. We're still, still all waiting. You're still all waiting? I, I thought it was over. Things were back, uh, back going into production these days. 
So basically, um, you know, we're filming in New Orleans and production has not really picked up in New Orleans other than some really low budget films. Um, nothing is going to start up until after the new year. I think that has to do with budget and, uh, you know, probably taxes and stuff like that so that they can start the whole new year in a new a new uh, tax tax bracket, possibly. I know, and if people are just tuning in, uh, we're talking with uh, Stacy Perry. She's a veteran special effects makeup director. Currently, she's working on the uh, the TV program Twisted Metal, which is breaking all sorts of streaming records for the the Peacock Network. Stacy, I know that you lived in uh, and worked in Los Angeles for a time, uh, but as you just mentioned, you're in Louisiana now. Has Hollywood sort of become de-Hollywoodized. Are we now in an era where if you're interested in making a film or a television program that you could make that anywhere, that the uh, that the idea of it being made primarily on the West Coast is something that is no longer true? That's correct. I, I think that uh, that's been, especially with COVID happening, I think you've had a lot of people that have kind of realize that they don't have to be in Los Angeles to make movies, to act in movies, to have anything to do with uh, the entertainment industry. You can be anywhere you want. And uh, luckily, like for us in Louisiana, we have some pretty good tax incentives, which brings a lot of entertainment and uh, film and television to the the state. And that, you know, employs a, a lot of people. Let's say somebody is pretty good with makeup. They're good on doing makeup for themselves or when their uh, child is uh, dressing up for Halloween, they do makeup that looks great for them. How do they know if they have what it takes to pursue this professionally? Does everybody that does what you do uh, have to go to some sort of training or school for it? Or is it something that you could kind of break into independently without having gone through some sort of training program? So in, in the New Orleans area, you know, if you know someone who works in the industry, you can kind of get in the in the door that way if you just kind of get introduced to the right person. Um, I'm not sure how, how it is in L.A. now and, and um, Atlanta, which is another really big city for uh, the film and TV industry. But, um, yeah, in New Orleans, it's, you know, it's such a small community. If you know someone... Um, that works in the film industry at all, you can kind of get introduced to the right person and it can give you a chance to get your foot in the door and see if it's something that you'd even like. I know a lot of people are under the impression that it's a very glamorous uh, job, um, but they they usually get get, uh, a rude awakening pretty quickly. You know, our days are pretty grueling. We work anywhere from 12 to 18-hour days, and a lot of it is just standing for at least 12 to 16 of those hours. So it's not uh, it's not as glamorous and, and um, exciting all the time. You know, we do have some really, really fun things that we do. And um, just being artistic is, is one of the benefits of, of my job. And uh, so, yeah, you can you can totally do it and see if that's something that you'd be 
you know, cut out for. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the the long hours because that's something I've heard from other makeup artists. Maybe not a a makeup artist on a show that's as involved and as uh, labor intensive in terms of creating images as Twist and Metal is. But uh, but you're right. A lot of folks that view this as an opportunity to hobnob with movie stars when really mostly right. it's an opportunity to get up at four or four thirty a.m. Really interesting. Hey, uh, Stacy, really enjoyed having you. Thanks for joining me, and uh, hopefully we can chat Thanks again so in the much. future. Thank you. Uh, Stacey Perry, if you want to comment on any portion of our conversation, you're welcome to do so. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Which, um, you know, it, it seems pretty unlikely this year. Uh, in general, white Christmases are always pretty rare. I can remember uh, maybe two or three in the last two decades. But as, as far as getting snow, or at least having snow on the ground on uh, on Christmas Day, it's uh, it's pretty rare. And I interviewed a fellow one time that was proposing moving Christmas to January or February because it would be more likely to have a white Christmas. But it is what it is. Different states, I guess, have a uh, a different prospect of having a white Christmas. All right, 800-848-9222. Speaking of Christmas, I am almost done. I think I'm, I might even be completely done. With my Christmas shopping, I think I might have to get one more item, unless there's somebody that I've forgotten. I had a very small list this year, but I think everybody that's on it has finally been taken care of. So that is a great relief. Now I just have to work on... I I am not really much of a wrapping person, but I love the advent of the gift bag. I don't know who invented the gift bag, who said let's move from a society where people spend a lot of time, a lot of care, carefully wrapping paper that's beautifully constructed and cut and specifically taped with a bow on it uh, to look neat and uh, to take gifts professionally wrapped. I don't know who decided that we could replace that whole process with just sticking whatever item you get into a bag and throwing some crumpled up tissue paper in there. And that counts just as the same. I mean, why would you ever pick gift wrapping when that gift bag is right there? 
as an option that society now accepts. We did this, uh, we had at my sister-in-law's a recent uh, Secret Santa thing. I think 90 to 95% of the gifts were gift bags. And you know what? Nobody complained. It's great. It's great. Maybe it doesn't have that same look of nostalgia. Not nostalgia, but that same look of uh, care and attentiveness that we grew up with in the gift wrapping era. But think of all the time you're saving. Tony, I saw you cheering on the uh, gift bag situation. That's the best thing that man has ever created. I I think you're right. Go to the dollar store. Get a nice big bag and some tissue paper and put the gift in there and just give it to my give it to my loved one. Really? <laughs> or even your liked one. It is yes. uh, it is great. You gotta be careful though with re-gifting the gift bag. I did that one time, this is maybe 16 years ago. Somebody had gotten me uh a, a, a friend, a, co- a coworker had gotten me some macaroni and cheese. It was a gift certificate because I am a macaroni and cheese fan. I don't eat it as much as I as I as I would like to because you know it's not it's not great for you. It's pretty fattening. But there was a macaroni and cheese restaurant right by our office, and he got me I think a gift card to there with some samples of macaroni and cheese in there, or and you know there were noodles in there. Great, great gift, very thoughtful, and I used this. It was a great spot. I think it closed now, but anyway. I used this bag to give a very thoughtful gift. I regifted the bag to my cousin Andrea, who's my favorite second cousin. And she, uh, by the way, and if my cousin Anthony is listening, he thinks his kids are my second cousin. They are not. They are my first cousin once removed. So don't think that I'm excluding Jessica and Anthony when I say Andrea is my favorite second cousin. You, you they're they're not being judged on the same threshold. Just keep that in mind because I know Anthony does listen to this show. So anyway, I give her this gift, which formally encapsulated my mac and cheese gift. And I don't know how I missed this, but I guess when you're rushing to throw gifts and tissue paper into a colorful bag, maybe you miss these sorts of things. There were still some noodles in the gift bag. Little little elbow macaroni noodles in the gift bag. So here, I don't remember what I got her, but it was something very thoughtful. I think pretty expensive, too. And it was something, I think, kind of girly. Might have been some beauty products or something. I remember a lavender scent emanating from the bag, and she was really impressed. And then there's these little noodles, these little strands of pasta in the gift bag. And it was quite a thing to explain, oh, well, that gift bag used to, have macaroni and cheese in it. Now it's got your gift in there. Hope you like it. But uh, less than 24 hours ago, it was filled with macaroni. There you have it. 800-848-9222. Hopefully your uh, Christmas shopping is done as well. All right. The time has come for us to name our listener of the week. Now, this is a person that was almost named the listener of the week thrice. This person has become a valuable on-air contributor. The person is very smart, and he also has quite a sense of humor, and I think he's actually a pretty nice guy. I uh, must finally award the Listener of the Week distinction to Original Rick from Original Jersey. So congratulations, Original, Original Rick. His Christian name is Enrico. But Original Rick, you are this week's 
Listener of the Week. And as uh, part of the privileges, part of the prize of being the Listener of the Week, you get to pick tomorrow's bumper music. So send me your bumper music selections for tomorrow's program, and we will be happy to showcase your selections. I'll tell you what I was thinking of doing. Maybe because we started the Listener of the Week tradition late in the year. We started in September. Maybe this is unwise, but I'm thinking about doing it anyway. I thought it might be fun for our show to have a whole bunch of year-end awards. I'm not saying these are going to be the categories, but let's say the um, the awards were for best interview, worst caller, um, most uh, valuable staff member, whatever. I, I'm just spitballing here. I thought it might be fun if for all the people that have been named Listener of the Week this this year so far, if they were essentially the jury that got to vote on who won all of these prizes. So I'm thinking about doing that. So if that's the case, we'll, we'll probably make the decision on Boxing Day. And then if we do that, um, we'll probably do it on, um, we'll probably give those awards out on December 29th. Because that'll be my last show of the year. Because December 30th is a Saturday. Uh, yeah, that's our last show of the year, December 29th. So we'll probably do our year-end awards on December 29th. So if you have been a listener of the week, let me know if you're interested in that. All right, congratulations to you, Rick. 800-848-9222. You can also find me on Facebook, facebook.com slash Fan. Let me say hi to Brian in Brooklyn. Hi, Brian. Hi. It's good to hear you. Uh, I'm 86, so I'm a little slow, but... Uh, the guy that t- called in about the, the, the steel problem. I was in the Navy for years. We gave the secret of our quiet props and the submarines to Japan. And Japan's security was, was compromised and the, the communists got a hold of it. So that complicates things. We've got to worry about our allies' security besides our own security. And the other point I wanted to bring up is the monument was made by the only uh, worldwide sculpture uh, famous, and that's part of his uh, monument to his grave, and he was Jewish, and he was also in the Confederate Army. And the JDL and all the Jewish people here in Brooklyn were raising hell. That this judge, they're saying he did an anti-Semitic act. It's a worldwide monument, and it's gorgeous. So, you know, it's a piece of artwork, and uh, this uh, Moses, a Jewish guy, said that I had to have reconciliation because of the terrible civil war and to, and to stop uh, any any future, uh, uh, you know, guerrilla warfare because there's Brian, a lot of hatred. Because Brian, I'm going to give you the last word. I, I'm going to give you the last word. I didn't know that uh, the artist was Jewish. I'll take your word for it. It is a beautiful piece of art. I'm all for reconciliation. That's what we need more of. Your influence counts. User. 